0: This OPI podcast was recorded at an earlier date. Some material may be outdated and or mentioned under different circumstances. Consult your local health authorities for the latest on COVID-19. Back to you is up next, but first, take a listen
1: to this other fine OPI show. Hey, it's Mark Vernon from the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive. Your Tuesdays just got better because new episodes of the Car Guys Report are now available every Tuesday instead of Thursday. And our good friends Howard Sudbury and Steve Baskerville and their podcast, Back to You, will now be available on Thursdays instead of Tuesdays. Got it? Make sure to join me and Luke Costable on the Car Guys Report, now available every Tuesday. It's a Tony Lasano podcast, an OPI production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. The following is a Tony Lasano podcast
0: at Opie Show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is Back to You with Howard Sudbury and Steve Baskerville. And it's been quite a couple months. Uh, the understatement of the year 2020 with a pandemic followed sure by has. an entire movement. But, <clears throat> Steve, as you like to say, Life goes on, so the first thing I'll do is acknowledge that life goes on, and uh, a and, uh, baby boy came into the world recently that uh, isn't going to know about all these problems by the time he grows older, I hope, well, because I only it's hope. a sea of change. So congratulations on your new grandson.
2: Well, thank you very much. Um, here's the thing about all of this. Uh, I, like everybody else, am going through a whole myriad of moods. I've gone and still feel overwhelmed. I feel drained. I feel tired. Uh, And at the same time, uh, I feel hopeful and I feel uh, some of the best feelings I've ever had in my life because of the birth of my third grandchild. Three days after the death of George Floyd, uh, my family welcomed in a new boy, eight pounds and uh, four ounces, Uh, my daughter's child, and we are over the moon with joy about that. But uh, at the same time, by the end of that week and the weekend, um, everybody's awareness was heightened because enough is enough protesters in the street. Uh, it is time for change that is long overdue. And I can only hope that this child, like my other grandchildren, will will uh, grow up and be successful and have opportunity like uh, most Black people in this country uh, have not had or have a hard time trying to achieve. So, uh, yes, I'm joyful at the same time, like Black parents and grandparents for centuries have worried about their young children as they grow up. So, uh, yes, there are, there are lots of things going on in my head right now. And I know um, the same for you because we are all Responsible for trying to bring about this change that is so long overdue,
0: we are, and that is very well said. I've been, you know, in the group of um, shut up and listen, and I've been doing a lot of watching and a lot of listening. Uh, I saw an interview with Samuel L. Jackson with Anderson Cooper on CNN recently, and you know, I've always been a big fan of his career and his acting. And uh, I'm really a big fan of Samuel L. Jackson, the person, because he was talking about, you know, he's 71, so he's older than I am. He was talking about, you know, being an activist and protesting and being out in the streets back in the 60s. But he, like you, sounded a hopeful note. He said, this this feels different. This, This feels real.
2: This is very, very different. I mean, I, too, I'm only a year younger than Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, I've experienced um, uh, from the, almost the beginning of my consciousness of being in this world. Uh, I have, you, you know, we, we get on this show and this podcast and every time uh, we talk. We talk about all the changes we've gone through, from being kids to being young adults out in the work world to, uh, to having uh, careers. Uh, all the changes we go through. We talk about the changes we go through year to year. Uh, look, you have changed uh, in the last uh, w- two weeks since I've seen you. You used to have a fuller beard. <laughs> now your beard is gone uh, or, or shaved down. I had a fuller beard. I'm down to a goatee. There are changes that we make all the time. But uh, as I think about this and reflect about what's going on, there has been one thing that has not changed my entire life, and that's this thread, this continuous thread of racism and injustice and fear of police brutality uh, that has come uh, to the point now where not only is this whole country uh, watching and wanting change, but the world as well. I mean, you know that this is something that is bigger than we've ever experienced in our lifetime when not only is the whole nation uh, showing their feelings and the need for this urgency of change, but you have people in Germany and in France, you have uh, uh, protesting going on in England because the whole world is seeing that um, human rights are being violated and have been violated for years in this country. And it's time to to take note of it in a real serious uh, way of making things better for people. And and the thing about it is that we want that change to happen yesterday, like it should have. But I, you know, there's a friend of mine who sends me uh, pretty frequently uh, some quotations, and and he he may even send some. Uh, quotes from the Bible that might be relevant to whatever the times are and what we're going through and, and this started even before the virus and, and he used to do that and has done that before uh, the protesting uh, has uh, been a part of our lives and I want to I want to usually I look at these quotes and sometimes I look to see who wrote it and sometimes I don't or sometimes I'll just pass by them. But I just want to read to you a line that was written by this author as if he got up this morning and took a pen to paper and decided to express how he felt. That's how on the money this is. Just let me read it to you, and I'll tell you who wrote it. What it says is, difficult and painful as it is, we must walk in the days ahead with an audacious faith in the future. We feel that today. That was written by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who died in 1968. He died in 1968. He's talking about his life as a black man in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the early 60s. Over half a century ago, these feelings were there because they were very real, and they were real before he was born and before his father was born. It has been age old and uh the thing that struck me most about it was that that's a thread that runs through every black american's life all the i mean all the time and uh everybody's got a story one of the things that people can do you know i've heard these discussions too on tv in other sources where especially white americans may say well You know, what what can I do to not be a part of the problem, but be part of the solution? And one of the things that I think is critical is to listen to black folks around you. Everybody I'm willing to bet that every black American. Has a story of racism or or police brutality that has affected them or a member of their family. And if we all took the time to ask what was that experience like, it would be an eye-opener for everybody. I I don't want to keep going on and on, but I can tell you, you know, I can tell you that I'm not overstating it when I say from the time of my consciousness as as a very young child all the way up to now, I have seen some things and I have tried to maneuver through this atmosphere of racism almost from the start because of what life is like growing up black in this country
0: well you, you and I in in talking so much over the years and, and being close friends for 35 years haven't talked about a lot of this because what we have talked about is that our upraising up up you know, the way we were raised was so similar, really, in that we had, you know, we had parents that loved us and we had aunts and uncles around, we had support and everything. But the difference lies that I didn't have to, I didn't experience and didn't have to experience the things that you have in your life. And
2: that, and, well, and they're, they're difficult, they're difficult to, to share because they don't. I mean, mean, they're always within you. When I say you, I mean me. Those feelings are always there, and those experiences I will never forget. But not every person shares that kind of information. Right. uh, Because we're not asked to, or or we're not expected to. Yeah. But, But I can tell you some things, not to the extent of George Floyd and many others who have lost their lives along the way, but I can... Just tell you how my eyes were open you know uh, uh, black parents have to have two conversations at least you have to have one but there was a time when you had to have two critical conversations about maneuvering through this world of racism one my first one was when my mother sat me down as a i was probably about seven years old every every year from about age six through my early teenage years, I would go south to North Carolina from Philadelphia to visit my grandmother and stay there in the summer. And sometimes I'd go with my mother, sometimes I'd go with an aunt or an uncle, but we would always make a trip to North Carolina. That seven-year-old got sat down. My mother sat me down and she said, okay, you've got to remember this. When we we took the bus, it was either Trailways or Greyhound, and rarely did we take the train. We never drove. We didn't have a car. Just didn't have a car. Didn't need one to, to get around the city in Philadelphia. We didn't. All right. She said to me, you got to remember that it is different and things are going to change once that bus gets south of Washington, D.C. It was almost like you could draw the physical line. The, you know, that Mason-Dixon line. And once you got south of Washington, you had to be aware of life being different. And I thought about that, and I always would always shake my head. But I can still remember, it, uh, as clear as day, being in the bus station at one of the stops south on the way to North Carolina, probably in Virginia somewhere, And uh, we're resting for the 30 minutes or so before you get back on the bus. And I go to get a drink of water. And a big, tall, uh, John uh, Wayne-looking bus driver had a cool uniform on. Uh, You know, almost looked like pilots when those bus drivers had those uniforms on. Yeah. Uh, He looked at me and he smiled. He said, you're not from down here, are you? And I... I said, no, I'm not. And my mother, almost in a panic, had to go get me and retrieve me because I took a drink of water from the white-only fountain. Oh, wow. That's- I didn't know about anything about that as a kid, the white-only fountain. But um, that was a, your first sense of things, and not like I'm used to, uh, even as a black American up north. Didn't stop there. We finally get to this town in North Carolina where my grandmother lives. And summertime, you want to go to the theater. You want to go to the movie. Well, we had the one theater in town that everybody went to. And I had to remember, okay, when you get to this theater, you know where we go. And where we would go would be the back of the theater through the back door where there was a black cashier with a setup of drinks and candy and popcorn, you buy your you, you pay your ticket and you get whatever refreshments you wanted, and you would go upstairs to the balcony to see the movie. Now, those were just two uh, really non-physically threatening differences in life. But, imagine, you know, th- that's how my mother had to grow up. My father had to grow up. My relatives had to grow up in that world where the rules were so bizarre and out of line and unjust that uh, because of the color of your skin, there were many things you could not do equally. You could not go to the restaurant in the same way. You couldn't go to a movie. You couldn't go, um, you know, shopping because there were restrictions. There were so many of these Jim Crow laws in effect that your life was very limited in your opportunities. And so uh, imagine the perseverance it would take for anybody black to survive that and to be uh, successful and to, and to hope that things would be better for their families.
0: And how did a seven-year-old kid from Philadelphia react to that at the time what are your what are your well, memories like
2: just going it was like going to a different world i knew every i mean it wasn't didn't look any different than where i grew up but it, it hit home that there are oh so there's certain rules in effect uh because of our color depending on where you go in this country and uh, uh, uh it hit home that uh, it must have been tough trying to be a kid growing up and going to school and trying to get a job in that atmosphere, which brings us back to that line I read to you by Martin Luther King Jr. The need for protest was felt then. He was one who was very aware of what protesting can do. It's a valuable tool for change, and those were the kinds of things he was trying to change half a century ago. And we got beyond that because change did occur. But then, you know, that's only one, one part of it. I mean, you know, superficially things change, but it's so systemic that things have not changed that much. And, and it became clear to us with all of these images in recent, recent months. I mean, you don't even have to go back beyond this year to see... Uh, Black Americans suffocated to death, strangled to death, shot to death, uh, at the hands of police brutality. That's that's as real as uh, all these other injustices that have been around for a long long time. And that gets me back to that second talk. Remember I said there is that there are two conversations that your parents had to have with you as a black, American in this country surviving. When you hit around 16 or 17 years old, uh, your, your parents have that talk with you. And and usually you think, well, that talk is about growing up and sex and all that, because that's the, 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 right? the, the talk that we always, yeah. those are the facts of life talk. Well, you had to have that other fact of black American life talk. And that conversation went, be careful when you go outside. My mother used to always say, be careful now when you go out. And I, I I just never really knew what she meant by that more than just a, okay, I will. Don't get in any trouble. And part of that trouble was make sure that you survive any of these run-ins that you may have with, with those cops that might be out there. Not all of them. But there are enough bad ones, there are enough of them with with ill intentions that you got to be careful. And that talk meant when you get in your car and you drive or you get in your buddy's car and he's driving and you get stopped, you make sure that your license is in your front pocket. You make sure you tell that police officer, I've got my registration and my insurance in the glove compartment. That's where I'm reaching, because that's the only thing I have. Uh, You had to be extremely careful that he wasn't in a mood or wasn't going to be understanding enough. That second conversation that a black mother or father has to have with their child comes when they're about 16 or 17 years old. Uh, It's the facts of life, and not the facts of life about meeting girls or of falling in love or any of that it had to do with the fact of black american life when you leave the house and it's a must-have conversation and my mother would always say to me be careful now when you when you go be careful tonight and that wouldn't mean anything to me more than a mother's concern and i didn't think much about it but it was deeper than that because uh, she would always have to reinforce something that was critical to me going out in the world as a teenager. And she'd say, OK, you've you got to remember how to take care of yourself if things come up. If you're in a car, if you're driving, if your friend is driving, you better make sure that that license is in your front pocket, in your shirt pocket, where it's easy to get to. If you got your registration or your or your insurance card in the glove compartment, you got to make sure you tell that officer, I'm reaching in my glove compartment because that's where the rest of my stuff is, and that's all I have in there. You, you make sure you make him aware of, of who you are and, and, and what your intentions are because you don't know what his intentions are. And you may run into one of these bad seeds out there who – is going to have a bad night and take it out on you. And I want you to come home tonight. I want you to come home tonight. Yeah. You tell your son or daughter that. And uh, and you hope. That's just part of a, parent, a, a parent's fears. Uh, so um, I worry about that myself. I have a grown son and a grown daughter, and I still want them to be careful tonight. When you go out there Because I want you to come home Uh, And it starts Right around your teenage years When I was about 16 years old I'm walking down the street in the winter time With my overcoat on Not far from where I lived I'm a 16 year old uh, Going to a friend's house And a cop is cruising in his car At the same speed that I am walking Immediately, there's an intimidation there that gets your heart racing because, you know, these are bad intentions. I I don't know if you've ever walked down the street and had a cop cruise at the speed that you're walking.
0: Well, I've yeah, I have. And I've always felt an intimidation toward police like when I get pulled over or got pulled over for running a stoplight, or for uh, speeding, and your heart starts racing. And I've had some of them come up and be professional, and I've had some of them come up and start verbally intimidating you. And I was smart enough to know that I, okay, it's not going to end well. I I can't defend myself. But that was just intimidation. It had nothing to do with my race. That's where it's completely different.
2: And it wasn't happening almost every time you left the house. Yes. And walked down the street.
0: Isolated incidents. And let not t- because let me tell
2: you, race. Let me tell you the rest of this particular story. So I'm walking down the street as this police officer uh, yells out the window, where'd you get that coat? And I looked at him and I said, the store. And he looked at me and he said, you got a receipt. And when he said that, I smiled because I thought he was joking. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him with a smile and then he looked back at me and he was not smiling. And I realized that he was serious. So he stops the car. He stops me. He gets out. He frisked me uh, to see if there was anything else I had stolen. Anything else I had stolen. The assumption is that I don't know what he was assuming other than the, the sheer joy of harassing and intimidating and I didn't know what the outcome of that would be but I knew as a young black man as a teenager from my parents advice that I better be as um, safe about this situation as possible because it could go easily to the next level and so when he when he searches me and realizes that I don't have anything on me, then he lets me go. And so that, that wasn't a solo incident. That would happen here and there uh, throughout my teenage life and friends of mine as well. I have had something else happen to me that could have changed my life forever, could have changed my life forever as a black man in this country. Uh, in this, and there, This has happened over and over again to black lives in this country. When I was a little bit older and I was in college, and I'm walking downtown in Philadelphia, Philadelphia was like a lot of these other places that had an awful nasty history of police brutality uh, headed by a guy named Frank Rizzo, police commissioner who later on became mayor of Philadelphia, the symbol of arrogance and uh, racist behavior and brutality police chief during these years. Uh, and and you know, because we talked about this, that he he had his statue removed this past week in Philadelphia. That's how hurtful and how deep the pain from the Rizzo years is for anybody who was growing up a black American in that city. So my friend and I are walking down the street in downtown Philadelphia, uh, college students, and that same intimidating uh, situation develops. We are walking, and a police officer is in his car cruising at at the same speed. And we look at each other, and we say, "Uh uh-oh, because we know what's coming next. We know something's coming next. So he cruises up and pulls up in front of us, up on the sidewalk. Horses come galloping up. Uh, A couple of uh, police vans as well. This is a major scene now we get thrown up against the wall and searched. We get handcuffed and we are led to one of those police wagons. And here we are yelling out loud, what did we do? What did we do? We don't even know what we supposedly had done. And they put us in the back of these wagons. And we go back to the area near city hall not far from where that Rizzo statue stood years later and finally came down. But in that city hall area, there were banks on the the corner. We get taken out of the van and action news and eyewitness news, all the the TV stations are there. And, And lawyers are stuffing their cards in our pockets, stuffing their cards in our pockets. So we say to each other, oh, as they lead us into the bank, We said, oh, I I guess we robbed the bank. I mean, that's how sad it is. Oh, 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 now we know. I guess we—and these lawyers are saying, here's my car. Take my car. Uh, You call me. And and we get hustled into this bank after hours in the late afternoon. And uh, it's an empty scene except for the tellers and some plainclothes detective types and some other police officers. And they take us, the two of us, up to this little older white teller. And one of those officers says, are these the guys? And she looks and she pauses and my heart drops. She pauses. My heart sinks because I know this is now at a level that I've never reached before. And... She says, he didn't have a hat. I had on a corduroy jacket and a corduroy cap. And the cop pulls my cap off real quick and says, is this the guy? Is this the guy? And she continues to hesitate and she's, um. And they tell her off to the side, looks over and says, oh, come on now. They don't even look like robbers because she was there when this bank was held up. And the woman says, I, I, I guess not. I, I don't know, no. Are you sure, are you sure, uh, no, no. And he just, are you sure, are you sure? And the woman three or four times says, that is, no it's not. And he in anger gives me my hat back and they take us back to where they picked us up and and they warned us with threats. We know who you are, we know where you live, and we uh, we can get you when we want. We were outraged and I go home and what can we do? What can we do about this? What can we do about this? And the most chilling thing was about to happen. It wasn't that. The most chilling thing was when I decided to call the Human Relations Commission. Some agency I thought could do something about this to get my justice. And the woman on the other end of the phone said the most uh, chilling thing through this whole episode. She said to me, just be thankful that the woman said no. And I said, what? What do you mean? She said, do you know how many young men like you we have down here in the jail because the woman said yes? Do you know that you could have had some exorbitant bail that your mother would have never been able to pay that you may not have ever been able to to, to reach, you, you would not have been able to afford a fancy lawyer. You wouldn't you'd be sitting in this jail for God knows how long because the woman said yes. And because you were thrown into this situation. That's how raggedy and rough this justice system was and and the attitude of the police. And it was time after time guys like me, black youth, boys and girls, men and women were treated like that. You know, I, I mean, you, you can, most black folks that you know could probably list the experiences more than just a, an, an infrequent thing that happened to them, isolated here or there. I remember being in an apartment complex, older, married, maybe my older child was a toddler and there's a, a crash that we hear in a window near where we, where our particular apartment was. I look at my window, there's a guy across peeking out of his window at the same time. So we rushed down the stairs to see what was going on. We are two black guys coming out to see what happened. And down the little uh entrance way from the apartment is a woman she's in tears a young white woman and she's crying and she says to us somebody grabbed me i threw my purse through the window it crashed and he left and uh by the time we're standing there the cops arrive and they uh they ask what happened and we're standing with her and she says well somebody grabbed me from behind and and, and he I, I threw my purse uh, through the window, and he ran. I said, "Okay, uh, what he looked like?" And she said, ah. uh, "He was, he was black. He had a black jacket on." And and, it, and the cops were turning to leave, and we said, "Well, wait a minute. Was he young? Was he old? Was he fat?" Shut up. I said, "Well, you don't know any more details than that. We got enough." How many young black men in black jackets were picked up that night? How many of them were in situations where they were in a holding cell somewhere and they're changing their lives and they could be innocents off the street? I mean, it's just that systemic racism and injustice that was happening everywhere over and over again, get us to the point where enough certainly is enough. And it's especially at the hands of, of the police. That's why you get people in the thousands out in the street, reacting to what has happened within this last month alone with, with all these young lives that have been taken. And, um, um, and it says something, you know, something else we learned. Yes, this is a black problem for the ages. And yes, brutality has been around as long as we have been alive. But it also says something about the nonchalance and the attitude and the, and the brazenness of the police in general. When you see something like what happened in Buffalo, with that seventy-five-year-old man, who gets bowled over and stepped over, and walk as these uh, officers walk away, and even in that scene, you see a moment of humanity. If you recall, after looking at that, one of those officers bent down as if he wanted to help. He got pushed away, pushed away by by a superior, and it, keep going any that's a that's the a case right there in front of your eyes where any you know humanity gets shoved away because the force takes over and it's and it's more than just good cops trying to be good cops when you got the attitude so prevalent that that's not what we're about we are a force we are a force uh, we're not here necessarily to save lives we are on the attack.
0: And that's where the word systemic comes from. The problems sure. are systemic. And throughout the police forces, the rule is we stick together. Right or wrong.
2: And you know who I'm glad stuck together? Those 56 cops that uh, decided to resign in yeah. Buffalo.
0: You know why? Because Goodbye. Goodbye. we got rid of. Because Buffalo got rid of 56 bad cops. We don't need you. Go
2: away. But, but at the same time, you know, uh, one of those voices that me- makes sense is uh, Governor Cuomo to me. Cu- uh, Cuomo to me uh, makes me want to listen when he says things. He said something last week that I thought was pretty interesting. He said that, you know, we've had the virus we have protesting in the street, but what the virus has taught us is that social action will change things. People will change in dramatic fashion to make something better. Uh, Why do you go from 800 plus deaths in the city of New York down to about 40 in six weeks time? You, You know how you get there? Because people change. People change their behavior. They stay indoors as best they can. They wear masks. they social distance. They did something about that and they changed it. You have this other virus that's been around for 400 years that people have had enough of. It's so much so that you take to the streets because uh, your social action is going to change that too. And it's so powerful that that's going to bring about a change and it's occurring in small steps already. You already have mayors and and police chiefs suspending cops because of the abuse they've seen in the last two weeks. You already see Congress people coming together to try to pass a police reform bill uh, as quickly as they can because this this, this protesting has brought about the impetus to do that. Uh, We can change things. We can't change things, of course, at the speed that we want. Because it's taken far, far too long to get this far, but but we we can change things. And when you can change things, when you have great numbers of people who realize how horrific it is and how immediate the response has to be, so uh, we start off with me me feeling somewhat hopeful. Yeah, I feel hopeful because I see that. Uh, people are responding. Anybody with sin. And the other thing about this to me is that it's got to be from the ground up. It's got to be from protesting to uh, local government to governors. And you work your way up because God knows we're not getting help from the top down. When you've got a president that is so ignorant of things, so unaware, so unwilling, so unmoved, uh, and, and just uh, so um, so uh, un uh, unhumane in, in his his actions and the words that come out of his mouth. He is so unqualified that it doesn't you can't depend on it from from the top down. You got to move this from the bottom up.
0: You do. You mentioned the Buffalo incident where they knocked the 75 year old man down, and the president I guess we have to call him that but he defended the cops in that situation. He said, I something to the fact that maybe he was Antifa and he was sent there yeah. with a message and like he took a pratfall like a WWE wrestler so sure. every sure. time he opens his mouth he's he's empowering the people that don't need to be empowered you know that have all the wrong views but he's also leading other people to say enough is enough, he should well, be a voice of reason. But when yes. you don't, when you don't have any empathy, and you, then you then you can't say the right thing. He's incapable of saying the right thing because he doesn't feel the right thing inside.
2: Well, you don't even know if he has any feelings at all. He's a man who stands in front of that uh, church. Uh, in Washington, with the Bible upside down,
0: yeah, yeah,
2: like it's and, and could very well be the first time he's he's held the Bible other than putting his hand on it right. sworn in. yeah, there's no evidence of him being anything other than what he appears to be all the time. No. you are who you appear to be. He's the same one. And here's the other thing too. within a short period of time, you see white guys in fatigues with rifles and grenades at the capital of, of, a, of a state like Michigan, and they are called citizens taking the country back. Armed people with, uh, in fatigues, they are citizens while an innocent man is on the ground being, with his life snuffed away. I mean, unarmed man with, with, on the ground. For eight long minutes. And those eight minutes are, are excruciatingly long. At that first memorial service for George Floyd in Minneapolis, the plea was to stand up wherever you were if you happen to be watching it and, and take a time out for those eight minutes and 46 seconds. And I did that as we were watching. I tried to do it. I tried to do it because that is just a, a grueling amount of time to even stand pausing silent for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. And can you imagine somebody's knee on your neck and other knees on your back collapsing your lungs for, for, for 8 minutes and 46 seconds?
0: And the only reason all this happened we because there was a there was a video
2: well i'll tell you something there other videos too and, and there are, you, you, you got and i wrote just a few of the names down just because they were the most current videos you had eric gardner man who was choked to death in new york you got Ahmad aubrey in georgia you got uh of course you got that martin in Buffalo that we were just talking about. Yeah. You got Brianna Taylor in Louisville. Right. You've got, you've got a lot, you've got a lot of videos that tell the story of what's going on. And, um, and it makes people realize that my son and my daughter did not have a video and the same thing happened to them. Yeah. But it's just too much, too much at once that gave the whole world a look into what has been happening for years at the same time that you have such an insensitive and uncaring leader of a nation who is not doing a thing about it. And who knows? Maybe the virus, in a sense, has kept people more in tune to their devices and being at home and watching television and being more aware than ever of these Incidents and videos when they do pop up. That's why we, as a, a world, are seeing this and reacting to it.
0: Yes. Well, your voice is powerful. It's um, it it hurts to to listen to it. Um, and thanks for uh, sharing all of it. It's very personal in nature, but it's reflective of of you know. Things that have happened to, you know, many, if not most, you know, African-American people uh, in their youth and, and, you know, throughout their lives. And that's why as innocent as some of them may be, uh, because it's a figure of speech when a white person says, you know, I understand. Um, We don't understand because we didn't live it. If you didn't but, live it, but, but, but that's why you a listen. A white
2: person, but a white person knows injustice when they see it. Yeah, and they and they and they they have seen it, and they have and they've heard it expressed by by all the stories out there that uh, Black Americans could tell about life in this country. And then it makes you wonder, you know, well, well, what what do you do about it, and how do things? How how can things change in many ways? And then you get more information. I just saw something where, for instance, 7% of the police officers in Minneapolis live in that community or live in that city. 7%, which means that the overwhelming majority don't even know much about the community that they're serving. You know, some of the things that used to be better to me were when you did have officers that lived near where you lived or or took more time to show up other than when something bad has happened. They know who, who lives on that particular block. They know some of the kids who, who walk the streets there. They know the store owners. They know the church and the pastor just because they are a part of it. And they know... That when they go to that particular neighborhood, they're going there with the intention of saving lives. Saving lives is the pri- and, and the force being to, to 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 have enough strength to make that happen. They're not going in there taking lives away, or brutalizing, or abusing people if they have some investment in that community that they're serving. Serving. Serving and protecting. That's that's part of what their mission is.
0: It is. I've got a couple other questions for you, but uh, we're going to take a short break and We'll be right back on Back to You.
2: This is Minutia
0: Man with Rick and Dave. On this week's Minutia Men with Rick and Dave. A doughy looter
1: needs a workout. Social distancing shoes. A Missouri pothead with a great
2: name. My brush with a celebrity. And our interview with New York Times bestseller, Sun-Times columnist, thinker, Neil Steinberg. <laughs> All that in unlimited tangents on this week's Minutia Man.
0: Tony Lasano podcast, an OPI production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. RadioMisfits.com.
2: Podcasting from Chicago, an OPI production for the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This
0: is Lasano and Friends.
1: When the guests receive a questionnaire, there's a bunch of questions on there. One now has been added this season is. What pronoun would you like to be known as? Totally. I have like non binary friends, and I'll find myself saying the word man, and I'm like, I'm not even using it as like a
2: pronoun. Right. It's yeah. just a
1: filler word. Right. And I know that it means so much more to them, so I'm trying to like force it out. Right. But it's so. Embedded. That's like a pronoun I've yeah, used yeah. since I was a yeah.
2: kid. Yeah.
0: And I still fall back on it just being like, oh, hey, man, what's going on? You know what I mean? To
1: anybody. Yeah. Woman, man, yeah. trans, anybody. Yeah. And I always feel terrible yeah. about it no matter who I'm talking to because it's a stupid thing to say. It's like a crutch. I've been like the South thing. and But I mean, the South thing would be better because so you can just say y'all and then you're <laughs> oh, done. <that's laughs> that covers everybody. <laughs> no, that's, I just use y'all. Maybe the South is more progressive than we <laughs> yeah. are and we need ways, to give them more sure, credit than they sure, get. Absolutely. Y'all is the best. Gender neutral pronoun. <laughs> it really is. It hits the singular, yep. it hits the plural, plural yep. it yeah. hits
2: everybody. Yep. <laughs> and it's got a
1: little bit of character, too, because it's like, howdy, y'all, how you doing? Yeah. It's
2: bipartisan. We're yeah. across the yeah.
1: aisle. We have solved sexism <laughs> in this it. country. Now, racism. Maybe not the word, y'all. <laughs> Be sure to tell a friend about Lasano and Friends, which is available online at Radiomisfits.com. Follow Lasano Friends on Twitter. Radiomisfits.com
2: we are back this is back to you with Howard Sudbury and Steve Baskerville you making me you making me sound like and Steve Baskerville and our special guest Steve Baskerville well <laughs> you are, <laughs> because you're not a I guest, have dominated but, well this uh, exchange that we had well, yeah,
0: well I, w- uh, I wouldn't use uh, that uh, word <laughs> Um
2: you, <laughs> you, <laughs> Okay, Mister Control Board, I've got the control board. I've
0: got. I've got got no control over anything here. If people only knew how many times we've restarted this thing today. Yeah,
2: it is tough to mechanically get it done. It
0: it is while you're trying to think and talk, Um, but you've done beautifully. Um, The question that I have for you is: is it is it hard? or painful for you to relate these personal stories and experiences? Uh,
2: no, it's not It's not hard. Well, it, it's only hard because you get emotional about it and you want to almost tear up about it as you recall it and you reflect. Uh, that can make it hard. Uh, it's not hard because I think people need exchanges like this uh, and they are having exchanges like this more than ever, and that's of great value. So that's not that—that's one of the things that makes it a little bit easier to talk about. And you know, we're we're learning, we're learning all the time. You know, we are. You know, I remember I, I, I read that quote from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Yes, here's a here's another one that has to do with how how things have not changed yet. They have not changed. And that's why people are in the streets like they are. And this goes back to the 1960s again, some, maybe even the fifties. There was a guy named James Baldwin who was a, uh, he used to be on the Dick Cavett show. He used to be on Jack Parr and and places like that in the fifties. He was an activist and he was an author and, um, uh, he was a, a black voice. There were so, so few of them, especially in those days, to have uh, uh, black guests on shows like that. But this is just a quote that uh, that comes from him that sounds like he could have gotten out of bed this morning and took his pen and said, I have to write down what's, what I'm feeling right now in June of 2020. But listen to what he wrote Decades ago, he said, It is certain in any case that ignorance uh, allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. That's what we got going on now. That's what we've been talking about at the top of this country ignorance and power. And that's an awful combination. And, and that's the reason why just for me personally um my feelings are I'm, I'm at a point where uh, I can't wait till November I don't want to rush my life away because I'm already feeling like time has been so constricted because of the constraints of the virus but I run I can't wait to November for that change to occur that I pray happens so no,
0: I I can't either, and, and I'm like you. Selfishly, I don't want time to fly by, and there are things about the the summer that we, we enjoy. That's selfishly, uh, you know, the way I look at it. But November 3rd is the date, and, you know, people at this point, if you don't know who he is and what he stands for, it's the president. And you're not listening,
2: and you got to make a change.
0: Yes, and um, I saw Bernard Shaw, the one of the original anchors on CNN, mm-hmm. and a great newsman. And Bernard Shaw, in talking about the change in November, he said his feeling is that he will not only lose, but he will lose in a landslide.
2: Well, I hope he's. I hope he's right. I do too. I. I. I, I hope. I, I. Even if it's by one point, I hope he's. Right. Well. Yes. Yes. I mean, I. I. Uh, you know, I'm. I'm like, a lot of other folks, where. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't ever want to. I'm at a point now where there's nothing that he says that ever makes sense to me. No. Uh, and, and I don't get anything that. Uh, that doesn't fill me with some kind of anxiety or anger when yeah. he opens his mouth.
0: Well, it's my feeling that the the snapshot, the defining moment of his presidency is going to be the video of him standing there in front of that church, uh, shaking the Bible like it was a pepper shaker and then holding it above his head when everybody knows that it's a foreign object to him. So that's that's how he'll be remembered right there, I think.
2: Well, uh, that, uh, you know, and in that same week and a half period, at the height of, of what we're going through. Uh,
0: Do you have to you hear, that? You, you hear my hear phone ringing? Yeah, you're a popular that's man. Part
2: that, that's part of that life goes on, right? It is. Yeah. Um,
0: it's but, your house phone.
2: Yeah. How many people still have that? But that's a whole different discussion. That's
0: next show. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, that's yeah. It, yeah. I still use Ask Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, anyway. Um, but but, just to sort of finalize what we're talking about with the insensitivity of the president, when you've got someone who. Who has the nerve to say, as he gloats over the unemployment figures, that George Floyd could be looking down, smiling at at the st- yeah. stats? Yeah. From, I mean, that's heartbreaking to hear. It is. That that is just so wrong. That. Uh, like that's another one of those things he'll be remembered for, another little snapshot. It is of of where he's coming from.
0: And with with him, you don't know what's coming next, and what might top what he's already said. If you go back during the early stages of the pandemic, you know when he talked about drinking Clorox and Lysol, and then. That ridiculous, heartless statement about George Floyd. On and on and on.
2: I haven't seen Dr. Fauci lately.
0: No, I haven't either. Well, you know, you brought up a good point when we were talking recently is that, you know, uh, with us coming out of the news business is that it's amazing that something else came along that could knock a pandemic that has killed 110,000 Americans off the front pages. Yes. And and it's like yesterday's news, but it's still there.
2: Because for centuries, that other deep-rooted virus has been killing so many folks.
0: Right, right.
2: And continues to. And when that, that's what it takes to overwhelm something like the virus. But, you you know, I'm I'm optimistic. I think you can go, I I saw a, a sign somewhere that said you can be all of these things, you can be tired and sad and anxious and overwhelmed and drained and all these things we've said, but you can still be positive because you need a, a positive energy to take you beyond this because uh, the work will always be there. And so you have to have enough strength to not have your spirit broken.
0: Yeah, and, I, uh, I agree with that. I'm, I'm optimistic too, and sometimes it takes a terrible negative uh, to bring out a positive. But the thing that I am positive about is that This movement, this time, with all these voices being heard and with people being out in the streets, this is for real. This is going to happen.
2: This is on a level where the United Nations could get together and say that this country is violating... Human rights of black America. Yeah. And, and there would be a lot of heads nodding yes across the world.
0: Well, the fact that the majority of the people agree with that and are saying enough, it's over. That's what's going to lead to change and that this isn't just a moment in time like other movements that this one's different.
2: Yeah, because because all of these uh, folks who are expressing themselves in protest are letting you know that when you see the video of George Floyd, he he, he sadly was not alone in this happening to him that there are a lot of grieving uh, Lots of grieving families who have suffered from abuse like like what has been handed out visually over the last couple of weeks alone.
0: Right. Um, you asked me when we were talking in our daily phone conversations, uh, you asked me the other day, well, you feel so strongly about this. <laughs> have you been out in the streets protesting? and my answer was
2: I don't remember your answer what was your (laughs) answer you tell your answer
0: what was your answer it had a real impact I said (laughs) well I I would be if it weren't for the pandemic
2: well you know what I think a lot of people are like that uh, because because there's a, there are a lot of grave concerns about um, those who are susceptible to, yeah. to, you know. I don't want to put you in a certain age group, but you're in a certain age group where you have to be more aware and heightened because of
0: what age of group being would that be?
2: Yours. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that was another thing but, i mentioned that, earlier about samuel l jackson and he said that he'd be the first one out in the streets but he's in that susceptible age sure. group, being 71 years old but um i would be out there it's important to be out there but um you know the movement's not going away and there'll be plenty of time to express ourselves and and Keep the, well, keep the heat on the people that
2: will make change. Your consciousness has been raised like everybody else's right uh, across the, the country. Uh, the change is real. It's occurring. It's not where it ought to be in conclusion, but it's it's it, This is work that's going to continue to be uh, done. And that's why it's going to take us all the way through the next months, especially for that kind of change at the top that we've been talking about. But um, you, you have to realize that conversations like this are happening everywhere. And a lot of change, too, comes one by one when people... Witness what the real story is, and what and, and the and the why behind a lot of it. People know what's going on, but they may not be clear on the why. And the why is deeper than what happened to George Floyd. We will never forget what has happened to George Floyd. Floyd, but uh, that has sparked the history of what these folks everywhere have been going through for a long, long time. And we're just tired of it.
0: Yep. Enough's enough. Well, these conversations are so important, as you said, they're happening now. And you know, once again, you know, I say thank, thank you for, for, you know, opening up for sharing personal stories that you know, are powerful and will have such an impact on anybody that listens to it.
2: Well, I hope so. I mean, it's just, it's my story and my story is not different from millions of other stories that are similar in experience and in maneuvering through a system that can hold you back in so many ways. And, uh, I'm blessed because, uh, so much more, uh, could have happened to me because I had, uh, a career that made my face recognizable in a way where I don't want to say immunity, but I, I would get a break from circumstances that could be different. Sure. But, uh, it didn't have to be this way, and, and I look at it as cotton candy. I always looked at my uh, career and what success that has brought as cotton candy. Didn't really, It wasn't real because everybody that I knew, most everybody that I knew that was close to me, didn't have those kind of breaks that could allow me to not suffer or be exposed to violations over and over again. But you see, you know, there, there's so a, a lot that has to change. You know, like you, you see it with these reporters, these young reporters who uh, go out and talk about what's happening in the street with a microphone. They put the microphone down and they're not in suits. They become another black face that yeah. gets cuffed and hauled away.
0: Gets cuffed on live TV. Sure.
2: Yeah. And uh, you double that with the administration, or at least the president, making the media the enemy. Because that's more truth that he doesn't want told. Yeah. If it's not his truth, there is no truth. And uh, he doesn't deal in truth or facts at all. And God knows he doesn't want you to expose any truth.
0: November 3rd. That's the date. Well, let's bring sure. this full s- circle, Steve. Uh, we began by saying that you have a new grandson and you have three grandsons now. And I've got a little two-year-old granddaughter. I don't know if you heard her, but she's in the house as we speak.
2: <laughs> I I what? She was almost as loud as a phone. <laughs> Your phone.
0: Your house phone. But you know what? Yeah. Those little innocent little faces, they don't know about any of this stuff. And maybe when they're old enough, maybe well, they won't know look, maybe they won't know there's a problem because there won't be one.
2: No, but she's learning all the time, and she's got a grandfather over there who knows right from wrong and and can can tell her the truth and can help guide her and give her an understanding. Of the whole world, and how we are all—we uh, are all the same. We're not—we're not, we're not different, and we're not different certainly because of color of skin. Uh, but we all have to fight for justice because we are all in this country together. And so, uh, uh, it's—it's it's not a racial thing. It's a system thing. It's. Uh, it's on many levels. It's a poverty thing. It's an opportunity thing, uh, and we want all of our grandchildren to um, to live in a an environment where we all have opportunity and education and a chance to be successes.
0: It's a human thing, and yes, it is. those grandkids of ours they're going to lead us in the right direction. We gave them a shove. They're going to lead us. And you know what? Just fasten your seatbelt and go along for the ride because I've got a lot of confidence in the young people.
2: Yeah, I do too because overwhelmingly those are the ones who are uh, leading this change now. You see, you see so many young faces uh, out in the, in the crowds as you scan uh, who's out there and who's, whose voices are, are, are being heard. And and who who's a part of this overwhelmingly peaceful protest? Yes. At that,
0: that's another reason I don't need to be out there with those
2: young faces. Well, they they would not include yours in that group as a young face. <laughs> <laughs> let, the old, let the old man through.
0: Yeah, but thanks for coming. Let the old man out. All right. Now,
2: are, are uh, you trying to say that? Um, this is winding down now. We're winding down.
0: Winding down.
2: Uh, it has been uh, good to talk to you. Yeah, it's and been good great. to talk to those. Good to talk to those out in podcast land.
0: We thank them as always. And
2: um... and the greatest miracle is that we actually got to record this without too many drops or goofs. Or Now watch, we got through this whole thing, and none of this was recorded.
0: Well, I was just going to say, don't be don't be so sure that it was
2: recorded. Yes, yes.
0: We're talking about things being positive, and uh, I'm not positive that we recorded it, but I'm positive of, that we would like to give a special thanks to our executive producer, Tony Lasano with opishows.com. Yes. Opi is hippo spelled backwards, O-P-P-I-H, shows.com. Distributed by Ed Silha with Radio Misfits. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place, radiomisfits.com. And, Steve, we should thank Samuel Greenberg.
2: Samuel Greenberg has led us through this whole situation of trying to make this happen away from the usual facilities that we had.
0: Yes, our home facilities, and um, if it's recorded, it all worked.
2: Have you used facilities? When was the last time you said facilities? It's been a long that's time. One, that's just one of those words you don't use. You don't
0: use day. it very often, do you? Just,
2: no, that sounds like like podcast radio T V talk it facilities. Does.
0: It does. All right, All right, Steve. Thanks for coming on I'm your done. show.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Are you done? Yeah. I'm done. I'm done. I'm completely I'm I'm completely worn out. All right. Thank you. Until the until the next until the next episode.
0: Yes. Until next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks to Steve. Yes. Yeah, see you see soon. You.
2: Bye. This OPI podcast was recorded
1: at an earlier date. Some material may be outdated and or mentioned under different circumstances. Consult your local health authorities for the latest on COVID-19. The proceeding was a presentation of OPI Productions. Find our other great shows wherever you find podcasts, including opishows.com. Thank you. This has been a presentation of OPI Productions. Tony, can you shut up? Coming up on the next episode of the Car Guys Report Informed Automotive, we talk about how a junkyard visit could save you some big bucks. Plus, a look back at Australia's recently departed Holden brand. I'm Mark Vernon. Join me and Luke Hostable for these stories and more on the Car Guys Report, a Tony Lasano podcast, an Opie production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This week on Ann Friends, not only does the news get naked, but we get naked. That's right, too. Tommy and I and Kimmy are sitting buck naked in seats that you've never seen before, sweating our asses off talking about funny stuff. People have asked me to put my clothes back on, and I have refused. All that and more
2: on this titillating episode of Anne Friends.
1: Great Talk Radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place.
2: Radiomisfits.com
1: Is this over? Yes.